Hello and welcome to this edition of the Blackwell Online Podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this programme is historian Emily Cocaine. The title of Emily's previous book, Hubbub, Filth, Noise and Stench in England 1600-1770, already gives some clue to her interest as a historian. She's not afraid to rummage among the less salubrious aspects of the lives of her ancestors, and those instincts have now led her to write a history of neighbours in English history called Cheek by Jowl. That title points to a central aspect of our experience of having neighbours, their enforced proximity. They may be our friends, or in some cases become enemies, or they may simply be the noise of a stereo, or a predictable key in the lock, or a dog barking. But it is almost impossible not to be aware of them. Emily's book delves into what neighbours were like in the past, when nuisance neighbours might have been guilty of much more than just annoying you with a wind chime or an overgrown hedge as you'll hear in this interview. She also looks at how the kinds of houses people lived in in the past influenced the way neighbourly relations developed and subjects the notion of past golden ages of neighbourliness to scrutiny. I began, though, by asking what attracts Emily to a historical subject in the first place. It would be the little stories, the sort of the people who are often considered to be the nobodies of history, who, um, how they just get on and how they interact with each other. And I suppose it's any historian has a sense of nosiness. So with a subject like this, you really do get the opportunity to read people's diaries and people's letters and and sort of letters between neighbours. And all of that is is fascinating because it's something that we're interested. We're interested in the minutiae of people's lives, but we're kind of not allowed to be. We're we're supposed to be interested in celebrities' lives. But um, as a historian, I find those little stories that don't usually get remembered because they're, they're, they're not that a big a deal, but they, everybody has many of them in their lives, but they don't, they, they don't cause big changes in national society or politics, but they're, they're just constant everyday ideas. I mean, it is struggling that after immediate family life and working life, probably neighbours are the, the third most sort of influential group that, that all of us interact with. Even 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 if that has changed over the years, it's still it's still the case that the people we sort of see in the street and, and hear and hear as we're going to bed or, or whatever. So they they do impinge for good or ill on our everyday lives. Yes, they're they're ever present. Some people describe them as the sort of the strangers that know us really well, because often we don't know very much about them apart from when they come and go and what noises they make and what television they listen to and how they recycle and little things like that. I think that's changed. I think in the past, amongst poorer people particularly, they really did know their neighbours because they had much more opportunity to get to know them. And I think now in in modern society it's possible to blank your neighbours out, to ignore them in a way that it wasn't always possible unless you were very rich in the past. So to some people they're very important and to other people they're not. And and some people can have a very important relationship with a neighbour that isn't reciprocated, so that neighbour's very important to them, but they're not all that important the other way round. So it depends on how people need help or attention or however much else they have to do in their lives. The less we have to do in our lives, the more our neighbours' lives are interesting. And relations with neighbours can can bump along quite happily, quite amicably for for long periods of time. And some apparently very small thing can can cause everything to come crumbling down. There's an example in the book of of neighbours who who shared a, a driveway for their cars, but then when one of them wanted to sell up and put a partition down, well, the things turned very nasty, didn't they? 
absolutely. I mean, we all know that it's 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 quite hard to hate somebody we've never liked, <laughs> but it's quite easy to hate somebody you used to really like. So think of past relationships, for example. When they go sour, you could, the, the the hatred can really deepen. And I think some of the worst neighbour cases I saw, I read about, were the ones that people used to get on really, really well, and then some little thing happened, and they fell out. And I think part of the problem is there. Getting to know your neighbour really well means that you tell them things or you let them in to sort of information that you might not let even friends into because they're that much closer. Then when you fall out, they're an enemy who might have some information against you, who, who sort of lives really close. So you can't escape them in a way that you might somebody else that you've fallen out with. And I suppose it's that inescapability, that sort of, oh, I know, are they there again? that might deepen that dislike. But I was surprised the sort of the deeper, the de- deeper animosities were always amongst the people who used to say, oh, we were like sisters, mm. we shared everything. And I think it is because of proximity and because of that idea that, you know, you can have an intense feeling about somebody and once it turns, it can go as intense the other way. I mean, maybe we should have a word about what your working definition of what a neighbour actually is. I mean, how, how wide do you cast your net in considering someone a neighbour? This is tricky, the definition of neighbour, because particularly for a historian, the further back you go, the more fluid it becomes. So neighbour sort of means anybody in a parish, in a community. So when you read people say, thy neighbour, my neighbour, they often could mean somebody who lives a mile away. And for the early modern period, I found it extraordinarily difficult to locate people, to, to find out whether they actually lived in a house next door to each other. Very few people were very specific and said, my next door neighbor. Uh, the only people who were generally were people in defamation cases. So my next door neighbor said I was this horrible thing. And I didn't really want to focus too much on those completely negative stories. Now, the further on you go through time, you get a more tight definition of neighborhood or neighbors amongst people. And you get, certainly by the 19th century, you get a greater sense of people describing they lived opposite. They lived in the tenement next to me. They lived, they were the person next door. So I got a greater sense of exactly where people were. And in the end, I decided that there was a term written by a woman called uh, Annie Swan who said, neighbors are people who are at least within hail. And neighbors are people you can shout to. And I thought, well, maybe therefore I could say the nearest five or six houses. And indeed, a neighbor of mine, when I was thinking this through, came around. I was talking to him. And he said, um, well, a neighbor's somebody you can visit in your slippers. And he was wearing his slippers at the time. And I thought, well, yeah, that sort of makes sense. It's someone who you, that, that was a good neighbor is someone you can visit in your slippers. So that was somebody who you felt comfortable visiting in the sort of backstage clothing that you would wear at home. Mm. And that's what neighbors can see. So I suppose I decided that I wanted to look at neighbors who were living quite close to each other. Whereas the further back you go, Neighbours were people who could live near to each other or might not, but were still described as neighbours. And this caused so many problems with things. If if I looked at the dictionary of um, national biography, very many people were described as neighbours who lived nowhere near each other. Mm. And in one case, they were in the neighbouring shire. (laughs) They were the sort of lord, the the squire in the neighbouring shire. Mm. This is just getting nonsense. So it's a very, very fluid term, and I tried to tighten it up. And what about the notion of neighbourliness? When do we begin to have a sense of what it means to be a good neighbour and, and by contrast, a bad neighbour? 
I think that's something that's continued throughout. I think the idea of neighborliness is certainly something you'd notice in the medieval period, particularly, again, when somebody was perceived to be not being neighborly, so to be rigging up their gutter in an unneighborly way that would upset all the other neighbors because they'd send their privy waste through right. it, through their houses. And certainly by the early modern period, there is a sense that, that there might be something being lost with the rise of individualism um, that might, might mean that neighborliness was declining. I'm not sure it's very easy to trace decline of neighborliness until we get to the mid-20th century. So I think neighborliness is a constant thing amongst very many people. Now, if we look at something somewhere like London, though, that's very different. We do, already by the 18th and 19th century, get a sense that people would seek London because there was a lesser sense of neighborliness so therefore you could reinvent yourself and you could have more of a, a anonymous neighboring and there were some court cases of the time where people were surprised when a witness came forward and they said well who are you and they said well I'm your neighbor and they thought are you now all of that's tied in with our sense of tight community feeling and I think a large city as it's developing might lose some of that so 17th and 18th century London you might get a weaker sense of neighborliness. But then in pockets within that, I think you st in backyards, in courts, in, in living areas like that, I think you still might retain neighborliness. So it, it's a difficult one to, to say whether it came and went at any point. I, I think it certainly did start to slip a bit by the mid-20th century, mm. this sense of neighborliness, because it, it's something that requires mutual, regular recognition and sort of repeated encounters with your neighbors and when you don't get that so much and i think you don't after the 20th century then the sense of neighborliness starts to weaken it's very striking from the book emily how the style of housing actually imposes its own patterns in the ways that people interact and indeed the way you organize the book reflects the way that the building styles have changed over the centuries can you say a bit about about how how you see that operating Yes, and certainly this, this, in the early modern period and the medieval period, people in, in the urban setting in particular lived very interconnected lives because the style of housing was very much people living on top of each other and people occupying smaller spaces within larger spaces, which meant that they had to travel through their neighbor's property often to get to their own. Or sometimes they'd have to go through a neighbor's space to get to a bit of their own property because properties weren't so encapsulated as they are now. And again, looking at the urban experience, if you look uh, a little later, if you look at the Victorian period and the back-to-backs, back-to-backs were very hard houses for to be neighborly in. And I was surprised how few uh, cases of nuisance neighbors I discovered in back-to-backs. Because if you think about living in a back-to-back, -back, each wall of your back-to-back -back will have, potentially, unless you're at the end of the back-to-back -back terrace, will have a neighbor. So normally we're used to a house that there's at least a space that we're sort of protected from our neighbors. But in a back-to-back, -back, because they are so, you know, they don't have a back, so that you're backed onto by another neighbor, there are so many neighbors, they're mm. everywhere. Also, that means that you have no external space. So in back-to-backs, the style of living was very different because it was very much more outdoor. There was very little ventilation in a back-to-back, -back, and they were tiny, and lots of people lived in them. So with all that outdoor living, I think people got an opportunity to get to know their neighbors extremely well. In some cases, that did cause conflict, but it did seem to create quite a harmonious, caring environment. 
that might be looking through the sort of middle class commentators, mm. rosy, rosy spectacles of the time. They might have thought it convenient to think that people quite liked living in back to backs, and I'm sure they they would have preferred not to. But because I did you, get a sense of community there. I mean, you also point out that there were quite a lot of fights in the street <laughs> too. That the living close together, that people shared their pleasures, but also things could quite easily boil over into into violence, and that was that was the way that things were regulated. Absolutely, and in some places that seemed to be the entertainment. You know, let's watch these two women fight over, over whether one of them's worse because they drink every night or the other one's worse because they, they're, they're loose with men. I don't want to push the rosy um, middle-class commentator's view. It wasn't necessarily all good. It's just I was surprised that there wasn't a huge amount of commentary about the neighbour nuisance. That could be because there was nowhere for people to take those mm. cases to. They couldn't afford to go to court, so they might have just dealt with the nuisances by having a bit of a fight and a bit of a shout. Then if you move a bit later to tower blocks, uh, again, you know, you have conflict in living there because walls are very thin. So it depends on the the type of building, how close people are, and and the construction of the building as well. You quoted one respondent to the the mass observation survey in the, was it the 1930s? Yeah. Um, And this woman said, I don't want to have a lot to do with my neighbours, but I want to like them. And that just seemed to me to really to sign up, to, um, to sum up very much the British attitude to neighbours. You know, we, d- we don't necessarily want to be living on top of them and to know everything about them, but we, we, you know, we want to feel that we, we, can, we can get on with them, and I suppose in a crisis that we can turn to them. Yes, absolutely. That seems to be something that certainly develops by the 1930s. In the late 19th century, a social worker was noticing this sense that we don't really want to have very much to do with our neighbours. We want to get on with them, but we don't want to have very much to do with them. And she was noticing this as being something slightly unusual. But certainly by the 1930s and definitely by the 1950s, the ideal neighbour was the neighbour who kept themselves to themselves and expected you to keep yourself to yourself as well, which is quite important. They didn't really want you to impose yourself on them. So I guess this is connected to the, the rise of privacy and encapsulation and backyardization of the time that people started and people started to invest more in their own home and their own family. And certainly you do get that feeling that people started to want to keep their neighbours at arm's length. But they also wanted to get on with them. And that's the complication. If you keep somebody at arm's length, you don't always know them very well. And therefore, if they do something that you perceive to be a nuisance, you don't always understand why they're doing that. And sometimes you might perceive that to be critical or directed at you in particular. And some nuisance neighbours, I think, are, are sort of cooked up in people's heads because they personalise the relationship too much because of this sense of not really knowing their neighbour very well. So they want to get on on a surface level. But sometimes that's not enough to understand why somebody's behaviour is idiosyncratic or annoying because we haven't known where they've come from. So I think that's part of our problem in modern society, that we just we don't know those neighbours who we perceive to be a nuisance. We don't know where they've come from. We don't know why they're doing what they're doing. So we assume they're doing it to annoy us. Mm. But I think usually they're not. You've alluded to, to neighbour nuisance already a couple of times, and a, a lot of the book is taken up with the things about our neighbours which annoy us. And it seems to me that there, there are some sort of hardy perennials there that endure over the centuries, and then there's some new ones that come and go. Um, it seems to me that encroachment of one's space or one's light or unwelcome noise and unwelcome smells seem to endure over the, the centuries, whichever form they take. They do, yes, it's true. 
<laughs> the constants are things like crying babies, which people generally, thankfully, don't complain about. Dogs, um, which are, seem to be a constant. Noises, but noises have changed a lot. So in the past, noises were noises often made by tradesmen at home. And we don't get that so much since hmm. the 19th century, but much more of a separation between home and work. There's a um, wonderful point in the book, I think, where someone's accused of slaughter, was it slaughtering 100 sheep at home and <laughs> there were complaints yes. about the mess and the smell. Exactly. And, and, you know, think back to those times and be kind of thankful that we might just have the occasional bit of beat music. And, and the modern studies survey said that wind chimes were the most irritating neighborly noise, which made me think, well, maybe we're just so sensitive to anything now that we, we pick on that as being an annoyance. But certainly you, you, you get the sense that I, I think that, that one, one nuisance that has certainly declined is stench and smell. So we don't have our neighbor's dunghill up against mm. our wall anymore. We don't have our neighbor's pigs rootling around and leaving their smells. We, in, the, in the 1730s, Lewis Smart and Tottenham Court Road had, had hundreds of pigs and these tarnished people's silverware and discolored the linen and their, na- their servants moved out and the property prices declined. Now, what happened was since um, the cholera kicked in in the 1830s and then the response for the author- from the authorities was to develop uh, public health in the area, I think that is one one part of the nuisance of the past that thankfully we usually don't get from our neighbours, mm. but many others have have either stayed in exactly the same form, so, so dogs and crying babies, or have continued like noises, but have taken different forms. The point you, you suggest there is that neighbours in the past really could affect the quality of life in very serious ways, way beyond wind chimes, whether that be infectious disease or the risk of fire or a gas explosion. I mean, they could, they could really um, affect our, our lives, not just with a little irritation. Exactly. Uh, and fire, think of the way fire spreads from neighbour to neighbour. Um, mm. You know, if, if, if in case of fire, do be in your neighbour's house, do be aware that your, your own house could be, could be the one that goes up next. Certainly, their the lives were more intertwined in so many ways. So because you, don't, you, you may not clean out the toilet that everybody shares, or, or nobody points out that it's blocked, so sharing facilities like that could cause a nuisance as well. And we don't share anything. We don't share taps. We don't share toilets. toilets we don't share anything like that in the same way. So therefore, there are fewer, fewer ways that our neighbours can misuse shared equipment and facilities. And that impinges much less on us now as well. I think, we, I think that the numbers and types of nuisances, although some have continued, they have declined over the years. Now, I have to confess, I hadn't come across the notion of a spite wall until I read your book, and I was fascinated by this. I'd come across the, the Cutterslow Wall in, in Oxford, which I guess is, is maybe one particular manifestation of it. But can you say what a, what a spite wall is? Yes, uh, spite walls are particularly unpleasant walls that were built particularly to block out somebody's view or vantage. Now, it could either be so that you, you would build a wall so that people didn't look into your property. And the one that I include in my book, The Extraordinary mm. one, was built in the 1880s. So one neighbor built one house. So two, there were two plots of land. One neighbor built one house and the neighboring the person in the neighboring property built their house right up against the property line, right up against the border. So that neighbor built a wall 
a few feet, well, not many feet, just exactly from this house, brick by brick, matched it brick by brick as it was being built. And this, this house next door has windows, but then the windows look straight onto a freestanding huge wall. This is in Silverdale near Carnforth in, in Lancashire, which was curiously the location of other spike walls too. So I think once one person built a spike wall, somebody else thought, hey, I'll do that too. There was a builder going was, around offering the service. Yes, one was really quite spiteful. It just blocked a view. So they didn't want them to, it didn't stop you looking into their property. It just meant that from this house, this house was built to overlook this beautiful landscape. And somebody thought, ah, oh, they're not having that. And they, they on their property built this great big wall so that the view was blocked. So, yes, they're quite nasty. There's, there's a listed one in Shepton Mallet that's quite extraordinary. And they're really just something that, thankfully, the modern planning system would not allow to, to go up now. And they, they are something that's, that's, um, that would really would bring gloom to the neighbour's house. And the Cutterslow Wall in Oxford, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I knew about it, but I thought it was a, it was a very clear class distinction. But, but it's a little bit more subtle than that. Yeah, it, it's not really a class distinction, it's a property-owning distinction because it divided two areas, one area where there were people who rented and one area of people who owned their own house. Now, they weren't, they weren't necessarily from very different classes, it's just that one group on one side of the wall were owners and the other side, and they didn't want to have very much to do with the renters on the other side of the wall. So the, it was in the, the early, uh, it was in 1920, around about 1925 that the estate was first developed and the walls appeared um, by 1934. Then between 1937 and 1939, the walls went up and down and up and down because they were knocked over by a tank in the war, and then they were rebuilt, and they were rebuilt as gates at one point. But throughout the 1930s till the 1950s, in the end of the 1950s, when the walls were demolished, they continued to be a blocking presence, which caused some problems with access so they were right across this, this estate. And in the end, the council decided that it needed to compulsorily purchase the land underneath the wall so it could have the walls removed. That was in 1953. They started discussing this idea of buying the land under the wall. And it took another six years for the walls to come down. And, and a little bit of the wall is, is still um, in somebody's garden as a sort of memory of this uh, this divide between uh, renters and owners. Mm, like a bit of preserved Berlin Wall. It is, yeah. Do you think, in fact, the, the concept or the, the, the practice of, of good neighbourliness is more resilient than, than media commentators sometimes would have us believe? Do you think, actually, it's changed shape, but in fact, it's still relatively healthy? Um, I think so. I, I certainly don't think I would agree with the Daily Mail view of neighbours all at war and hating each other. Mm. And it's very easy to bring out those stories and, um, and say, well, this is what it's like everywhere. And I think most people either have a good relationship with their neighbour or one that's neither good nor bad. And occasionally we all have some sort of experience with nuisance neighbours, but they're difficult to compare to anything in the past. I think neighbourliness has clung on in a different way. I think that we can feel that we can call on our neighbours to help. And in that respect... Even though it's not active neighbourliness all the time as it was in the back-to-backs of the 19th century, we do feel that if we have a crisis, we can call on our neighbours still. And most importantly, we still trust our neighbours. So in surveys, when people are asked, do they know their neighbours? 
there are, or, and do they trust their neighbours? People are more likely to say, yes, oh, well, I don't know my neighbour's name, but I do trust them to take my parcel in mm. or to water the plants or something like that. So I think there's still this sense of trust in neighbours. And I think it's very easy to stress the conflict because conflict makes great stories. It makes news. It makes good television. How common that is, I don't think it's as common as it is suggested by certain forms of the media. Then it, it's some areas certainly are blighted with poor, poor neighborliness. So I'm not saying these are made up, but I think most people's general experience of neighborliness is either neutral or positive. I don't think most people's experience is negative. Last question, Emily. What kind of neighbor are you? Oh, <laughs> Well, before I had my children, I was quite a good neighbour, I think. <laughs> but I have very noisy children, so I do worry about that. And I do worry that my neighbours might hear a lot of me saying, keep the noise down, and sort of shouting to my children about being annoying to the neighbours. And then that, I think that I might be a bit annoying and noisy. A neighbour on one side often mentions the sounds made by the children. And it's a sort of, in a sort of knowingly grumpy old man, he's not an old man at all, he's a lovely young man, but in a sort of knowing way. I am not as active a neighbour as I should be. There are old people on on my street that I should pay attention to, but I think that, like most people, I think that they will have neighbours, they'll have relatives who'll do that for them. And I think this is quite a, a common thing now that we sort of aren't as actively neighbouring as we might be. So I would say I, I try to be a good neighbour. I certainly don't do anything that um, is, is, is a major nuisance, but I have noisy children. Hmm. And I was, I was intrigued to see that you live on a street where if you introduce a contaminant into your recycling box, you get a sort of red, red, red mark on your box. You do, yes. So it's it's just something that the forms of, forms of being forms of awareness, even if they're never never spoken about, we we do sort of form little pictures about our neighbours' habits and lifestyles, don't we? We certainly do. I mean, here we have um, glass glass recycling is in a, in a separate box, and the lids often blow off, and you can walk down the street and think, hmm, <laughs> lots of bottles of gin in there, and and you 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 notice these things sort of subliminally. You don't sort of make a, a point of, of them, but even in what's in your recycling box can tell you something about a whether you recycle, b whether you take the lids off the jars like you're supposed to, and c you know quite how much alcohol you get through. Um, and what also, newspaper you read? Yes, exactly. All of these signs are just much more apparent because we put out our stuff to be reused. Mm. And look how good we are at that, you know, the, the little red tags that say, you've put some plastic in your recycling, yeah. you put a plastic bag in here, and you sort of think, oh, tut tut, you're not recycling properly. Emily Cocaine. Cheek by Jowl is available now in hardback. If you enjoy peeking into your neighbour's recycling bin, you're guaranteed to find much to enjoy in this book. You'll find it, plus several million other titles, at blackwell.co.uk. On the Blackwell site, you'll also find a podcast archive with over 150 author interviews by clicking the podcast tab on the home page. That's all for this edition of the Blackwell Online Podcast, but I hope you'll join me again soon for another programme. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.